1: From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. And this episode is about a big idea that turned into a very big problem. Several years ago, I went to a splashy launch party for a new tech product, which is a pretty normal thing for tech companies to do. The party was at a hip warehouse space in Manhattan. There was cool lighting and a great DJ. There was free food. This company had pulled out all the stops and the company had invited a ton of Instagram influencers and model types. So there were lots of beautiful young people there doing exactly what this company had hoped they'd do. They were taking photos and videos with the new product, talking about how cool it was and posting it to social media. Now, if I was talking about a new smartphone or a camera or a laptop, this party would not have stuck out in my mind. Tech companies throw marketing events like this all the time, influencers influence, the sky is blue, water's wet, this is how the world works. But this party was for a product called the Jewel. that's J-U-U-L, it's a vape. And the Jewel was, and still is, one of the most potent and effective nicotine delivery devices that's ever been created. Jewel's big innovation was a nicotine formula that made its vape hit just like a cigarette. And the party kicked off a marketing blitz that seemed directly targeted towards teenagers on social media. After that, the Jewel became a sensation and a sensationally dramatic story. Yes, the marketing helped, but it also turns out nicotine is addictive as hell. A tech startup that had been founded in a Stanford design studio to disrupt the smoking industry, had upended years of tobacco regulation in the United States, gotten a new generation of teenagers addicted to nicotine after years of declining teen smoking rates, and eventually found itself valued at $38 billion, after a huge $12.8 billion investment from Altria. Altria used to be known as Philip Morris, and you probably know it by its most famous product, Marlboro cigarettes. Then it all fell apart. The lawsuits came, the Federal Trade Commission sued to unwind the deal, the valuations of both Juul and Altria collapsed, and Juul itself now faces being regulated entirely out of existence in the United States. How did this all happen? How did a startup that was founded to stop smoking end up in the pocket of Marlboro? How did Altria screw up this investment so badly? And how did a couple of Stanford kids figure out a better cigarette before the cigarette industry? To find out, I invited Lauren Etter on the show. Lauren is an investigative reporter at Bloomberg News and the author of a new book called The Devil's Playbook, Big Tobacco, Jewel, and the Addiction of a New Generation. In the book, Lauren tells a story of how the tobacco industry went from hiding and lying about research that showed nicotine was addictive to being one of the most regulated industries in the country, and how that provided an opening for Juul to do things that tobacco companies could never get away with, like marketing to kids. The book is terrific, and I really enjoyed this conversation. Even if you don't care about nicotine and smoking, if you are a Decoder listener, you're going to recognize a lot of themes in this conversation. There's a big industry that's slow to adapt. There's a startup that's moving fast and breaking things. There's regulators around the world who don't really know what to do. And at the center of it all, there's a big question about our society's relationship with a product that might be bad for people, but that people still want. One note, just a couple days after we recorded this episode, the news broke that Juul has agreed to settle a lawsuit brought by the state of North Carolina that claimed the company's marketing practices caused a sharp rise in vaping among minors. Juul will pay a $40 million settlement, but it's also agreed to something else. It won't use anyone under the age of 35 in its marketing anymore. The party is officially over. Okay, Lauren Edder, here we go. Lauren Etter, you are an investigative reporter at Bloomberg News, and you're the author of The Devil's Playbook, Big Tobacco Jewel and the Addiction of a New Generation. Welcome to Decoder.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: This is your first book, and I have to say it is a very impressive first book. We covered the Jewel story at The Verge as a tech story, but you've got a health story, a really complicated business and regulatory story here. And really, the story of the tobacco industry and what it has become in this in this country. How did you start looking at Jewel in this way, and how did you end up writing a book about it?
3: So I started writing about Jewel after the outbreak of the lung injuries, this mysterious lung injury outbreak called E Valley, and I was just started writing about it from sort of a health perspective and trying to figure out what was going on, just like the rest of the nation trying to figure out, is this related to Juul? Is this related to vaping? So I started writing some of those stories. And then I became interested in Juul as a a business story. It was fascinating to me that a company that had found itself in the middle of this public health crisis was a Silicon Valley firm. So that's then how I started writing about Juul. So I wrote about that. And then as i as i embarked on a book i was really endeavoring to tell the story of jewel but i quickly realized it was impossible to tell the complete story of jewel without telling the story of the tobacco industry those two industries the tobacco industry and jewel were so intimately intertwined that it became evident to me that i needed to also write about the tobacco industry as well. So that's why I ended up with these two intertwined narratives.
2: Give people the the really short version of the, the Juul story. This is a famous product. It was all over the news. Lots of people use Juul, but it has a really sharp rise and then a really sharp fall. Give people just the basic arc of that story.
3: Yeah. So most people know about Juul having launched in the summer of 2015 with this flashy nicotine device called Juul and, you know, quickly taking off and taking over the entire industry and leading to a youth health crisis, um, youth usage. All the teenagers started using it. But actually the founders of Juul had been working on coming up with a healthier, less harmful alternative to the cigarette for years before jewel adam bowen and james monsey's two stanford grad students started working on it's almost like a myth and a legend by now a lot of people know this story they met at stanford in the design school they were smoking cigarettes out back as they kind of pondered their next project and they realized that it was idiotic to be smoking this burning stick essentially Shredded tobacco leaf, rolled in paper, lit on fire. The same product that people had been using for more than a century. Here they are in the heart of Silicon Valley where everything is ripe for innovation. And they realized, why hasn't the cigarette been innovated on? So they set out to innovate the cigarette. So as they embarked on that, they essentially found some of these old tobacco documents that had surfaced during the 1990s in the heat of the tobacco wars. And there were millions of documents that the tobacco companies had to hand over to make public as a result of litigation that had nearly buried them. So they tapped into that, had many, many iterations of their product before it became Juul, launches in 2015 ultimately, and just becomes the most popular e-cigarette on the market. They marketed it on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. They sent kind of traveling troops of these nicotine jewel marketers that handed out free samples at parties, on yachts, in the Hamptons, at raves. And it just became extremely popular. And as it became popular among the you know 20-year-olds, It soon became popular among the teenagers as well, middle school and high school students. So that was the moment as it became just a runaway success, that it attracted the attention of public health regulators, of the FDA, of members of Congress. And it just became this huge issue where Scott Gottlieb, the then FDA commissioner, called it an epidemic of youth usage. So... Basically, the company finds itself under this incredible scrutiny from every angle. And at the same time, the traditional tobacco industry had been trying to also innovate on the cigarette, their declining business. The cigarette had been in decline for decades. Everybody agreed that the business was only going to continue to decline as people realized that adverse health effects of smoking and it was not as cool to smoke cigarettes anymore and so as big tobacco tries to innovate they cannot out innovate silicon valley so at the end of the day altria the maker of marlboro cigarettes decides to invest in jewel in my book i write that was the moment the glass shattered for Juul. it's just attracted so much scrutiny because all of these years the founders of Juul had been saying, we are the anti-cigarette. We're going to kill the cigarette. We're going to kill the tobacco industry. And suddenly they're in bed with the tobacco industry. So that really kind of put them on blast in a a new way. They were under health regulator scrutiny. Their valuation, which once stood at $38 billion dollars, was just tumbling quarter after quarter after quarter. And now there's been a huge reorganization in the company. They've brought in all these new executives, many from the tobacco industry, and they're essentially fighting for their survival right now. Jewel, like every other e-cigarette maker, has submitted an application to the FDA. And now the FDA has to determine whether or not it's in the public health interest, essentially, to allow this product to continue to be marketed. So basically we're all waiting It's expected sometime this year for the FDA to decide whether or not it can be sold. If the FDA does not allow it to go forward, Juul has no product to sell. And if it does, I think Juul is well positioned to continue to grow and take over the market. So they're at a real inflection point right now.
2: And that is just a staggering rise in the fall, right? It's two kids at Stanford looking at a product that they're using, doing the tech industry thing, asking this kind of hilarious bubble question of why hasn't anybody innovated this thing, realizing that actually lots of people have tried to innovate it, using some of that, and then all the way to now we're potentially facing regulatory doom. Exactly. The big innovation with Juul was not really the design or the pods. It was the nicotine formulation. How do they stumble on a nicotine formulation that hits like a cigarette? Because early vapes were really, really harsh.
3: This is like Jule's secret sauce, the nicotine salts, of course. So, right, early cigarettes, what they did was they essentially just took nicotine and they added some flavors to it. But the problem with just using nicotine is it's extremely harsh. It has a high pH level. It burns your throat. Early iterations of e-cigarettes, they essentially could only put in small amounts of nicotine. So it wouldn't be so aversive to your lungs. The problem with that was that it didn't satisfy smokers because there wasn't enough nicotine in it. So they'd have to like puff and puff and puff on the thing and it just wouldn't deliver the satisfaction. So that'd been like the number one complaint by e-cigarette users. So Adam and James, they had done tons of research. They had delved into these tobacco archives which contained all kinds of science about nicotine and about tobacco. The science of tobacco smoke and nicotine chemistry is extremely complicated and complex. And they were able to use basically some early research that showed if you modify the pH levels of tobacco smoke, you can deliver different kind of satisfaction levels, enjoyment levels, that type of thing. There's also a body of research that showed if you add organic acids to nicotine, it lowers the pH, but you can have higher levels of nicotine. You essentially, by adding the organic acids, you create a nicotine salt, and that essentially allows the pH to go lower, but you have a higher amount of nicotine. So what that does is it enables you to inhale a large amount of nicotine without it burning your throat without you starting to cough a lot. I should also point out that they hired tobacco industry scientists. They had them on speed dial. They would call them and they would ask about the different various organic acids and how that could modulate the pH. And they did all kinds of research and they absolutely turned to tobacco industry executives and to the tobacco files, the archives, to help them solve the problem. They eventually did their own sort of experimentation in the dog patch in their um, in their offices there where they were adding various organic acids to nicotine to see what the most satisfying ones were. And they ended up going to New Zealand where they did their own tests on human subjects, including on Adam Bowen himself, to determine which organic acid in nicotine would give you the highest level of satisfaction, which, what would make your heart race race the fastest? What would, you know, when you take these little surveys, what would be the most satisfying one? So they did all kinds of, like, just really, like, organic research and um, ended up settling on benzoic acid as the organic acid that was the most satisfying. What this enabled them to do was something that no other company had really done which is devise a nicotine solution that had a high nicotine content, in this case 5%, which was ultimately marketed, but with a very low aversive component to it.
2: They picked benzoic acid, they have a patent, the patent lists like every other kind of acid you might wanna use down to citric acid. That prevents anyone else from doing this, right? Did, was that it? Was there another way around this problem? When I first saw that patent, I was like, oh, Jewel's going to win. Now they can block everybody else from doing the thing that made their product better than everybody else.
3: Right. There's definitely been IP litigation over this and there probably will be in the future. I just don't know how much Joule is going to be able to prevail on essentially owning chemistry. It's basic organic chemistry. So I just, I don't know if it uh, on first glance gives them the protection that you might think
2: what struck me about your book is that you don't start with Jewel at all. You, you start with Altria, which is the company that was known as Philip Morris. They made Marlboro. And you start with them in sort of the, the very late 90s, early 2000s. And it seems like what the entire cigarette industry was struggling with was we're going to be a regulated industry now. Yeah. We'll be intertwined with government regulators. We'll be intertwined with health officials. We have to learn to be that kind of company where the government is – kind of always up in our shit. (laughs) Tell me about that, because that is, to me, there's a really big parallel, not in terms of the product, but in terms of the attitudinal shift that, like, the entire tech industry is facing right now, right? You and I are talking, and Congress is literally talking about antitrust bills, like, simultaneously with our discussion today. But it just feels like that attitude shift created the opportunity for someone to not have the baggage and make the jewel. When if Philip Morris had invented the jewel, I mean, their their business would have been secured in a different way, but they were just unable to.
3: Yes, that's exactly right. I started the book in the middle of a hurricane in Puerto Rico uh, because I felt like it was emblematic of what the industry was going through, the tobacco industry. So back in 1998...
2: The book book starts in the middle of a hurricane. You were not in the middle of a hurricane.
3: (laughs) Right, correct. The the (laughs) book starts in the middle of a hurricane in Puerto Rico. And Philip Morris, the company now known as Altria, had gathered all of its corporate relations officials and executives and met here as kind of a retreat to talk about this huge moment in the industry where they had to basically admit that they had deceived the American people, that they had lied, that they had covered up all of this information and evidence about how deadly cigarette smoking was. And it had all come out into the public. The FDA commissioner, uh, David Kessler at the time, had made it his mission to essentially go after the tobacco industry to bring it under its regulatory authority for the first time. State attorneys general were suing the tobacco industry and the tobacco companies uh, for all of the public health effects and the costs related to treating smoking-related disease, every week there was a new headline about the misdeeds of the tobacco industry in the 90s. It was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. And it really was kind of this important moment that I thought almost does parallel where we are today with Juul. They uh, realized that they needed to have this permission to exist, and Juul essentially finds itself in the exact same position now, where they're kind of operating only if the FDA gives them permission to operate. They've realized that they created a youth usage crisis or helped create it, and that they have to be incredibly careful about it. But the interesting thing is that when Juul launched, when Adam and James decided to innovate on the cigarette, they had none of that baggage that the tobacco industry had. Right, They had not been through the trenches and they didn't approach the industry, this highly addictive product, nicotine. They didn't approach it with the necessary care in order to give their product a chance at surviving and asking permission from society. It's like the the motto of Silicon Valley, move fast and break things, ask for forgiveness, not permission. And that's exactly the mentality that they embodied early on when they launched Juul. And it's also the mentality that allowed them to crush the market, to take over and to basically flood the nation with Juul. So there are lots of similarities, lots of parallels between those two narratives.
2: Let me ask you about that, because the lack of baggage enabled them to make a product that the tobacco industry I – mean, and you go through this in detail in the book – that Philip Morris and the other big tobacco companies had been trying to invent jewel like products for years, and because of their own regulatory problems and their own wacky international corporate structures, they weren't really able to do it well. The Jewel team had none of that baggage. They were able to say what people want is nicotine, which the tobacco companies really could not say given the regulatory scrutiny. And then they were able to deliver the nicotine salt formula in the pods of the Juul. I think a lot of people would tell you they're very happy using a Juul instead of smoking a cigarette. And that is probably a net good, although I have some questions about that too. The thing that I struggle with in this entire story is, well, it's better than smoking. And so like if the tobacco companies were not able to make this product, is it a net good thing that a startup that made a lot of mistakes along the way, didn't need to ask permission to exist, eventually did d- develop a product that is in some measurable way better than smoking.
3: You're hitting on the exact kind of controversy, and I think it's super important to talk about it in this way. First of all, it's partly a sociocultural question about nicotine and about why do people use nicotine? Why do they want to use nicotine? It provides pleasure, it does lots of great things. It provides pleasure, it can help you concentrate, it can help you focus, it can relax you. You know, there are all kinds of appealing aspects to nicotine. And I should point out, and this is also a very important point, it's not the nicotine in cigarettes that kill people, right? Nicotine has some adverse health effects, but largely not many. There are even some studies showing that nicotine can help in the treatment of serious disease, including Parkinson's. But what kills people when they smoke cigarette, the deadly aspect of a cigarette is the combustion, right? And this is kind of the thing that Adam and James focus on is the combustion. It's the lighting on fire, the burning, inhaling, these toxic chemicals that form these tar droplets that end up affecting the lining of your lungs and causing lung disease. So people smoke cigarettes because they want the nicotine. Why do people want nicotine? Well, they're addicted to it. I think the addiction element is sort of the most important and I think most interesting aspect to focus on because what's so bad about nicotine? Well, you could potentially become a lifelong user of nicotine. So I think when we're talking about adult smokers, we know the reason they smoke is because of the nicotine. They want the nicotine fix. So why not give them a better alternative, a less harmful alternative that doesn't involve combustion? And that's the e-cigarette. So it sounds great. Well, I will point out that there haven't been you know, enough long-term clinical studies to show that there are zero ha- adverse health effects. I think most people agree and most studies show that there is a net benefit if you quit smoking and only use e-cigarettes. A lot of e-cigarette users also continue to smoke cigarettes. That's called dual use. In general, if you're an adult smoker and you just switch from cigarettes to Juul, for example, you're probably better off in the long run. The issue revolves around the kids, the teens, the youth, who become attracted to the product and develop a lifetime nicotine addiction. If you can separate that controversy out from the adult usage issue, then the industry would be okay. I think that's the industry's plan, the e cigarettes industry's plan to survive is to focus on the adult smoker. So back in the 1990s, at the height of the tobacco wars, almost 40% of teens smoked cigarettes. They were a tobacco user. By 2015, when Juul launched, it was down to like 10%. So it had been this huge public health coup. They had successfully gotten the youth tobacco use rate down to such a low percentage. So when Juul launched, and other e-cigarettes as well, suddenly you saw this rapid increase in the number of teenagers who were using e-cigarettes. Now, yes, better than a cigarette, but still adopting a nicotine habit. I mean, it's really two questions. It's can you prevent youth from getting addicted to nicotine? Because I think most people agree that there's no real redeeming quality for a teenager to just start using nicotine. First of all, their brains are not fully developed. There's all kinds of science and studies showing that nicotine, before your brain is developed, can have all kinds of adverse health effects on brain development. You become more addicted because the pathways in your brain become solidified. And so you develop a greater addictive potential. It's really a question about who's the problem? Like, where does the problem lie? If we're talking about youth usage, then I think most people would agree that we don't want kids adopting a new nicotine habit. But if you're talking about current cigarette smokers, there's a pretty compelling case to say that a less harmful product that does not involve combustion like an e-cigarette can actually have a net benefit to society. So the problem for Juul was that they didn't set up the opportunity for themselves to initially go after the adult smokers. They ruined their opportunity early on by essentially committing the cardinal sin in America, which is contributing to a new youth nicotine epidemic. I think those two issues often get conflated and people start yelling over one another, Uh, they're kind of talking about different things, but unfortunately, they're intertwined. Like, there's a moment in my book where I interview Mike Moore, the former famous attorney general who in the 1990s essentially took on the tobacco industry and was very gung-ho about that. And he described it to me in a way that I thought was really interesting. He said... Companies have made billions of dollars getting people to suck something into their lungs. He says, I hate to say it so clear, but how could you possibly sell that? There's only one answer, and the answer is nicotine. It's never been about anything else but nicotine. Without it, there's nothing. There's no cigarettes. There's no jewel. There's none of it. And for me, that was a powerful conversation because it highlights and underscores just how dependent these industries are on addiction. One other thing that's important to point out is that 90% of adult smokers today began smoking before the age of 18. 99% began smoking before the age of 25. So the whole concept dating back to the 1990s was if you can cut off the youth from nicotine addiction you won't have a next generation of users and from a public health standpoint that's fantastic because then they wouldn't be smoking cigarettes for the tobacco industry that's a complete disaster because that means they have if we do not have the next generation of users they do not have an industry that has a long life so For me, the kind of controversial issue is less about whether adult smokers should be using an e-cigarette to quit smoking, and more about the continuation of nicotine addiction that continues to addict new generations of users. So that's why I say it's almost a sociocultural question about why do we want nicotine in society? Why is it good? Should we all just be hooked up to a a nicotine drip? Would that be a better way? People like nicotine, but (laughs) the bottom line is they're addicted to it.
2: A lot of the scrutiny around Juul happened because of the vaping-related illnesses and deaths that were happening in the Midwest. That led to a crisis of, is vaping bad? Which is yet another track from, is nicotine bad? right? It's another way to conflate all this. Is vaping bad? What was the result
3: of all that? And how
2: did Juul get caught up into it?
3: Initially, when the lung injury outbreak happened, everybody just assumed it was Juul, or at least it was vaping, because basically you had these kids showing up to hospitals who had chronic lung injury, like almost as if their lungs had been burned. They were on breathing machines and that type of thing. I mean, it was a very serious problem. And then you had adults you know, showing up at the emergency rooms, the same thing. They had these chronic lung injuries. I think immediately the media attention gravitated toward Juul because Juul was the most popular product on the market. Juul had been sort of singled out as the one causing the youth vaping epidemic. And now suddenly you have all these kids who vaped showing up at the emergency rooms. It was a huge PR crisis for Juul. And the CEO at the time had this kind of fateful interview where he went on national television and said, like, we just don't know. We don't know if vaping is safe. But as the FDA and the CDC began their investigation into the lung injuries, they, over months, it took them months to figure out that it probably was linked to bootlegged THC products that were being vaped. Um, so these were like pods that were laced with this product called vitamin E acetate, which is kind of a syrupy golden liquid that a lot of the bootlegged products were cut with in order to either make it more syrupy or in order to cut the product to make it last longer, to go farther. And so the CDC ultimately said it was most likely related to these products that contain this Um, ingredient, vitamin E acetate. So by the time that the CDC got around to announcing that, their product had taken such a hit on the market. People were so spooked by vaping and by juuling that by the time that the CDC clarified things, it was kind of too late. There are all sorts of people who were furious at the CDC and the FDA for taking so long to come to that conclusion and for wrongly kind of singling out just vaping as the problem. However, I will point out that the CDC to this day continues to say that there's a small percentage of these lung injuries that were tied to to nicotine-only products, so not the THC products. Then you heard stories of people who started going back to cigarettes because they were so spooked by the lung injuries and people saying, oh, my God, the FDA should have or the CDC should have cleared this whole thing up earlier. It was a large misunderstanding, but it was also a catastrophe. And it was really bad for the industry, it was really bad for public health. You know, but it also does underscore that there's still a lot of research that needs to be done on e cigarettes to determine if they do cause any long term health um, problems.
2: We're going to take a quick break, but when we return, I'll ask Lauren if she thinks of Juul as a
1: tech company. Support for Decoder comes from Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Whether you're seeking a location for your podcast, teaching language courses, or selling handcrafted ceramics, Squarespace has all the tools you need to create a home on the web. You can create a polished professional place that connects people with whatever it is you're excited about. Squarespace also supports all forms of connecting with those people whether you're selling products online or in person or offering memberships. You can make your website look exactly how you want. They even have tools to help you create a custom logo. And they make it easy to create a place for people to schedule an appointment with you, browse your services, or learn more about why you do what you do. Visit squarespace.com decoder for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code decoder to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain.
0: Support for Decoder comes from Notion. Winter is beginning to wind down, and spring cleaning is just around the corner. In that spirit, it's time to declutter your digital workspace. For that, you might want to check out Notion. Notion combines your notes, docs, and projects into one space that's simple and beautifully designed. And the fully integrated Notion AI helps you work faster, write better, and think bigger, doing tasks that normally take you hours in just seconds. Personally, I use Notion to keep myself organized, and to store all the information I need in one place. I've tried a lot of productivity apps over the years, and Notion is sleek, intuitive, and powerful. In particular, Notion has an AI feature called Q&A that allows you to search all of your notes by simply asking for what you're looking for. For me, that means old links to news stories, long lost notes to myself, and maybe even an old password to an account I might be trying to dig up. Seriously, give it a try. It's as easy as just asking a question. We all want to be sending less emails and tuning into less redundant meetings. And Notion could help you by automating tedious tasks, like managing and summarizing notes. It'll also help you save money on all those tools you won't need anymore with Notion's integration. Over half of Fortune 500 companies rely on Notion to simplify their workflow, and you can join them. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash to try the powerful, easy-to-use Notion AI today. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com slash We're
2: back with Lauren Hedder. The focus on nicotine is what enabled Juul to succeed, is... A company that thought of itself as a tech company, as a disruptive company in those very heady days of 2015 when tech companies were going to disrupt everything. And they saw a big lumbering industry. They said they don't even understand their own product. They don't even understand what they're selling. We can make it sharper and better with a focus on design, with a focus on delivery, innovation, all the buzzwords. Is Juul a tech company? It seemed like a, a threshold question for us, right? We're a tech and science website. We realized we wanted to cover it and we're like, well, it's a tech company. They act like a tech company. They talk like a tech company. Now, many years hence, we realize, oh, a bunch of those companies were not actually tech companies. WeWork was not a tech company. Was Jewel a tech company?
3: I think Jewel is a tech company as much as they would like to now distance themselves from that. I mean, they sell hardware. There's software involved. They innovated. I do think that Jewel is a tech company. They brought to bear the use of technology in order to innovate on a product that had zero technology in it. They disrupted, they raised venture capital. I do think they're a tech company.
2: It's a big debate on our team over whether they're a tech company. And I think for us, what qualifies something as a tech company is whether you have the margins of a tech company, right? Whether you make a piece of software and sell it over and over again. Jewel has a very mechanical... Product They have to manufacture the liquid in the pods. They have to manufacture the pods. And they had a lot of, oh, crap, we make a hardware product with liquid in it problems along the way. And that ran right into some very strange regulatory moments that you kind of unpack in the book. I'm curious if you can tell that story and and kind of help me understand how they got through it.
3: So, essentially, their technology, it's a battery has a little heating element in it. The battery actually heats the pod. You insert the pod, and when you suck on it, it triggers the battery to heat up and create the vapor. There's also some electronics inside. And what they found early on, what most e-cigarette companies found, was that the liquid contained in the pod, the nicotine liquid, would leak down into the guts of the Juul device it was a really pernicious problem. When you're a startup and you're scrappy and you're trying to gain market share, having these kind of glitches in the functioning of your technology is very, very problematic what Jewel set out to do was to fix the problem. It wasn't an easy fix for a variety of reasons. They couldn't figure out for the life of them why the pods were leaking, how to solve for that issue. They would take the pods on airplanes and over mountain passes in order to figure out was it the altitude that was causing them to leak? Was there some other design glitch in the manufacturing process that was causing them to leak? But it was a huge problem that they had to solve for internally. The problem for Juul was at the time the FDA was cracking down on the industry and they came out with this law that said for the e-cigarette companies that you could continue selling your product, but you couldn't make any modifications to them. The FDA was essentially trying to freeze the market. So there would be no new entrance and they could kind of wrap their arms around this like unwieldy market. So they said, if you have your product on the market, we're not gonna enforce against you. You can keep selling it until you file this PMTA and get the thumbs up or thumbs down from the FDA. But in the meantime, you're not allowed to make any changes to your product. I think this is a moment where Jewel really embodied the sort of Silicon Valley ideal of move fast and break things, ask for forgiveness, not permission they actually ended up changing their device. There's a lot of argument around whether or not the change that they made to the device rose to the technical definition of a modification and whether or not that was a breach of the FDA's rule. But the fact of the matter is that they did modify their device after this, what they call the deeming date of August 8th, 2016, at a time when you were not supposed to do it. But Juul was at this moment where they were like, if we don't fix this, we're screwed and we're going to just get crushed by competitors. But if we do fix it, the FDA will probably never know and they'll never ask us about it. And it was a tiny enough modification. They changed the structure of the pod a little bit. On the motherboard, they changed some of the way that the um, product actually worked. They put a new like sensor inside of it that would withstand leakage better, that wouldn't cause it to brick, that type of thing. I thought that was a really interesting moment for Juul because the tobacco companies might not have done that, even though they face the same risk. And in fact, there was a very heated debate inside Altria because they had this, a similar kind of leaking issue and they debated for a long time whether or not it would rise to a modification and be in breach of the FDA's rules.
2: While that's all happening, Altria is freaking out that Juul exists, that it's going to steal their market share and destroy their business. They're paying a lot of attention to Juul. And they're the ones who find the change before the government finds the change. Why didn't they just copy the jewel? When I think about big tech companies now, they're just relentlessly clone their smaller competitors all of the time. Why didn't Altria, as it's looking at the jewel so closely, they're buying them, they realize that they've made this change. They've already effectively reverse engineered it to understand what's going on. Why didn't they just copy the jewel?
3: It was a question I just kept asking over and over again, like, how could Altria have been so behind or so clueless? Why did it, exactly your question? I would ask that. And the answer is sort of multifaceted. Altria was number one, they were late to the game. They, when they introduced their very first e-cigarette product, they called them the cigalikes. It was one of those that looked like a cigarette and it had e-liquid inside but it was really trying to approximate a cigarette. It was cylindrical. It was wrapped even in like this paper material. It was white. It had a glowing tip. So when you sucked on it, it looked like a cigarette. That was the first product that they put out on the market. That was around like 2013, 2014. Then Juul hits a market in 2015. And yeah, they start doing the teardowns of Juul just like they do with any other product, like figuring out, like, what is this thing? Like, it looks like no other product on the market. We've never seen anything like this before. And they honestly debated for so long whether or not it was going to be a threat to their product and to their industry. And They had different management before Howard Willard took over and ended up doing the deal with Juul. But at the time, the management was very circumspect about the long-term viability of the e-cigarette market. They thought that regulators were not going to tolerate another nicotine product on the market without going through lots and lots of regulatory hurdles. They believed that this market would not last for long and that they didn't really need to, you know, pour tons and tons of money into it in order to innovate. They already had sort of gone down that road, but a little bit reluctantly. Like, Altria had put their their kind of future plan before Juul came around was that their harm reduction play was going to be in smokeless tobacco and snus. Like, that's what they were thinking. They were thinking of going in the direction of this, like, you know, people are going to use nicotine, but they're going to do it in a pouch. And so when Juul hit the market, they were just kind of already behind the ball, even though they had done decades and decades of research. And by the time they realized it was actually a threat to them, the FDA had implemented this rule, the deeming rule, in August of 2016 and all the companies were forbidden from putting any new product on the market so literally altria they dragged their feet for so long kind of underestimated the trajectory of the market and by the time that they realized oh shit juul is actually like this you know crazy product that's just eating our market share they couldn't do anything about it they could not introduce a new product to the market
2: so the fda has a steaming rule At the same time, Altria knows that maybe it could kill Juul by going after the regulators. It seems like the cigarette companies wanted to be seen as the responsible adults, even though they sell cigarettes, and they wanted to cast the tech companies, the vape companies, as being reckless upstarts. At some point, the Trump administration gets involved, the whole thing becomes very politicized, and Altria ends up making this gigantic investment in Juul. How did that all come about?
3: So... In this kind of bout of desperation, when Altria is realizing that Jewel is an actual threat, they actually start scouring the globe for products that they could just simply buy that had been on the market prior to August of 2016 and put them on the market. They ended up finding this Chinese manufacturer that had this product that they could prove had been on the market prior to 2016. So they did introduce this, what they deemed to be their competitor to Juul, which was Mark 10 Elite. It looked kind of similar to Juul. It had like the battery and it had the little pods. This was Altria's very first pod product. And they didn't introduce it until like 2000, uh, I'm forgetting the date right now. I think it might've been 2018. But the problem with that product is that it was absolutely terrible. It didn't have the nicotine salts like Juul. It was ugly. It didn't have the form factor. It didn't have the Silicon Valley je ne sais quoi. And people didn't really like it. But Altria tried like flooding the market with that product. You know, they would figure out, oh, where's Jewel doing really well in sales? Let's go there and just like cut the price of their product to have this like price war. And they really did put up a fight for a while. And they realized that there was no hope. Essentially, Mark 10 Elite was a terrible product. Everybody knew it. It was almost like an internal joke where they were just like, this is pathetic that we're trying to compete with Jewel when they have like 60, 70% of the market and our product isn't even close to what they have. And all along, once Howard Willard became the CEO of Altria, he, he was of the mindset different than his predecessor that we should consider doing a deal with Juul, like let's try to buy Juul, you know, instead of competing, let's just try to buy our biggest competitor and make them part of our brand portfolio. And that had been a strategy that Altria had used for years, like in the smokeless market, when they couldn't figure out how to make a brand that was competing with Copenhagen, they just went out and bought it. This was sort of an old playbook (laughs) for the tobacco industry. And so they started thinking, well, let's buy Juul, They engaged in negotiations over a very long period of time, starting in 2017. And there was all this back and forth. Altria initially wanted to just buy Jewel outright. And Jewel immediately was like, We have no interest in selling. Outright, we want to retain control of the company, and so there are all these negotiations going back and forth. And they ultimately decided to invest twelve point eight billion dollars into Jewel for a thirty five percent share at, th- at the time when the company was valued at thirty eight billion dollars. I should point out this entire transaction. The Federal Trade Commission has sued. What happened was, Altria weeks before the deal was announced in December two thousand eighteen, they just took Mark Ten off the market. their elite product. They told the FDA, we're so concerned about the youth usage issue that we want to be a team player. We want to show you how responsible we are and how concerned we are for public health. We don't want kids using these pod products. So we're going to be responsible and we're going to remove Mark 10 from, from the market. That's what they told Scott Gottlieb. Well, less than a month later, there was this announcement that Altria had Purchase a 35% stake in the biggest pod product on the market that had been seen as the biggest contributor to the youth usage issue. Scott Gottlieb was furious. The FDA felt like this was entirely duplicitous, and was basically just said that they were playing the FDA like a fiddle. So that that all happened. Then. Months later, the FTC sued to unwind the deal between Altria and Juul. They allege that it was anti-competitive because Altria took its Mark 10 product off the market and essentially colluded in order to gain a larger market share. So the, literally the trial is going Doesn't on Doesn't that right kind of
2: make no sense, though? You have a crap product. You, you know you're not going to succeed. The nicotine salts are patented. You can't go after them you shut it down to buy the the small company that makes a good product. Like, that's just business 101. Like, what is the actual collusion there?
3: Right. The idea is that Altria could have competed in the market, that they had intended to compete. And had there been another large player with deep pockets in the market like Altria, they could have fostered a more competitive market. They claim that there was a quid pro quo, That Altria took its Mark 10 off the market in order to do the deal with Juul. And that was anti-competitive. That resulted in monopolistic behavior. So, of course, Altria is arguing exactly what you're saying right now. They are currently, before the FTC, all of their executives are being interviewed, they're testifying, and that's exactly their argument, that this was a product that was so bad, it had no future, it was the shittiest product on the market, (laughs) we couldn't, I mean, it's a hilarious argument for a big tobacco company to be making, essentially, like, we were terrible at innovation, our product was the worst, and we sucked, and so we had to basically take the product off, off the market. It's kind of a complicated issue. Like I said, the FTC will decide and the deal could be unwound. And that would be something for sure.
2: The structure of the deal is really strange, right? Like a lot of Juul employees just got huge amounts of cash and walked, which is not usually how these kinds of deals work. You get stock, you have a vesting period. All There's all this stuff that makes you stay after an acquisition. But it feels like a lot of Juul employees and investors got huge checks and bounced.
3: Yes, it was a highly unusual deal. So essentially the $12.8 billion that Altria paid for its stake was structured as a special dividend. What that meant was that none of the existing shareholders had to sell their stock. They essentially just got a check for $12.8 billion. Some of that was distributed to employees A billion dollars in bonuses paid out to employees depending on their tenure some of them got hundreds of thousands of dollars just as a special bonus others got more than a million dollars of course the largest beneficiaries of that deal were the the board members and the founders so the single largest shareholder at the time uh riaz valani he made around 2.6 billion dollars just like a windfall. Nick Pritzker, the Hyatt billionaire, he made $1.7 billion. Bowen and Monsey's each got about $650 million a piece. It was highly unusual. Oftentimes when when you bring in that type of investment or that type of capital, you'll use it, you know, either to pay down debt or to go to your company's operations. This was just a chunk of money that it was just divided up among them and they got that. So almost none of it went back into the company. In fact, none of it went back into the company. So yeah, that was a sweet deal for Jewel. It feels like
2: Juul had so much leverage because it had a product people liked better than cigarettes that it was able to just extract for itself a cash out. They basically sold the problem to Altria.
3: Yeah, and that's the most amazing thing about this deal the fact that Altria paid that amount of money is just reckless, in my opinion. It's like everybody knew the company was, you know, coming under this regulatory scrutiny, that they had this lung issue that they had been entangled in, that they, you know, that they had been fingered as the single largest contributor to the youth epidemic. I mean, there were so many risks in investing in this company. But it was almost a byproduct of just sheer momentum and desperation that ended up in this $12.8 billion payout. Altria basically had pu- had its back up against the wall. Jewel had them over a barrel. They were so desperate to basically have this product that they could sell that would you know, actually give them a foothold in the e-cigarette market that they paid this huge sum of money. I think it was a terrible deal. I think everybody agrees it was a terrible deal, except for Bowen, Bowen, Monsies, Pritzker, Volani, they made out pretty, pretty well.
2: Let's take one more quick break. And when we come back, Lauren will tell me where Joule stands now with the FDA and what the FDA's decision could mean for Joule's survival.
0: Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow.
2: It feels like a really strange moment for the FDA, for public health officials to be talking about regulating various health and tech companies. Obviously, we came through the pandemic. The FDA was politicized very deeply. Public health uh, was politicized. There's a lot of lack of trust in institutions. Smoking rates rose during the pandemic, which is one of the odder effects uh, of a respiratory illness, I think. What happens next? How does this all come
3: together? It's actually fascinating. The FDA is essentially trying to carry out this long-term plan that began under Scott Gottlieb, but that had actually been talked about for decades, which is the end game. They call it the tobacco end game. What that means is the FDA has decided that there's a huge potential public health benefit in getting people off smoking cigarettes onto potentially less harmful products like Juul. It's so strange because the FDA had been going after Juul for so long and, you know, there'd been this whole explosion of the youth issue and how that just kind of subsumed the agency. And now as they talk about this plan where they are going to reduce nicotine if, if it all goes through. But this is a plan that the FDA has, and they're, it's going to go through the regulatory process. It's going to take years. But the plan is that they're going to reduce nicotine in combustible cigarettes to non-addictive levels. The idea being that, again, if there's no nicotine or minimally addictive amounts of nicotine in cigarettes, people aren't going to use them. So they can essentially get rid of the cigarette. That's the FDA's strategy, is to get rid of smoking. As part of that strategy, they want to be able to provide a clean nicotine alternative for cigarette smokers. (laughs) And that's to enable them to transition off of the non-addictive cigarettes. So if there's a category of people that they can't get the nicotine from their cigarettes, but they still very much want it, that the FDA would like to have sort of a suite of products available to the public that will give them their nicotine fix without being as deadly as a cigarette. So this has been an issue that Mitch Zeller, who's the head of the Center for Tobacco Products, has been working on for decades. He's written all kinds of, you know, articles and studies about it, literally dating back to the 1990s. And this whole idea of this harm reduction plan That, you know, if you can just provide people with a less harmful alternative to cigarettes, then you could save a lot of lives. And it's very much like what Adam and James talked about, the Juul co-founders, early on. If the FDA approves Juul or authorizes Juul to continue to be marketed, it could actually position Juul to be like the product that smokers turn to because they no longer have their nicotine in the cigarettes and they're searching for something else. I mean, sure, there are other products on the market that compete with Juul, but I think a lot of people agree that Juul remains the most popular and it's one of the most effective kind of nicotine delivery mechanisms out there on the market. So it's just fascinating to me that the FDA in sort of carrying forward with this nicotine reduction plan could actually potentially be kind of setting up Jewel for a resurgence, n- another life, uh, act two, however you want to say that.
2: I've noticed there's a lot more nicotine replacement or nicotine delivery products in the market lately. Just at my local CVS, the shelf behind the counter of nicotine stuff has gotten bigger. There's more flavors. There's new kinds of lozenges. There's There's more exciting kinds of gum. It seems like They're becoming consumer products in a way that, I don't know, Nicorette never thought of itself as a consumer product. Is that a shift that was precipitated by Juul, or is that a new market opportunity created by the FDA?
3: I think there's this realization that this is a huge market. The the market for nicotine products is like $800 billion globally. I mean, it's a massive market, and that includes like... um, lozenges, patches, all of that, including e-cigarettes and stuff like that. But it's a huge market. And I think that people, this gets back to what we were talking about, the socio kind of cultural question about like nicotine use in America. I think businesses realize that this is a market that is not going away. Even if people aren't getting nicotine from their cigarettes, they're going to continue looking for nicotine in other places, whether it's through jewel, whether it's through a lozenge, whether it's through a patch, you know, all of that. I think that we're going to be a nation of nicotine users and nicotine addicts. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. And I think businesses have recognized that there's an opportunity. Certainly, the advent of Juul thrusts that market forward with maybe greater velocity, seeing just how much money can be made and seeing how popular it is, that type of thing. But certainly as the FDA moves forward in reducing nicotine levels in cigarettes, that market is only going to continue to grow. I think that the industry is transforming from, you know, the tobacco industry to the to the nicotine industry. And so I think we're going to see a lot of innovation in the nicotine industry. There's going to be more nicotine products.
2: Do you think anything the FDA has changed its approach. I mean, we we think about the FDA at The Verge as regulating health tech, right? That Apple's going to put another sensor on your watch. They're going to make some claims about what it can do. The FDA should probably step in and verify those claims or prevent Apple from making those claims or whatever it is. On the flip side, there is the pandemic. Like, it, It's unavoidable that a bunch of public health mandates got deeply politicized. And a lot of people in America are just like, don't tell me what to do. I'm an adult. I'm going to take whatever risks I want to take, and that will be the end of it. Get out of my hair. And those things seem like a collision course, and the nexus of that collision is nicotine products.
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. This is one of the most politicized products in the world. I mean, you have the tobacco industry right now, as we speak, going to great lengths to try to influence the FDA to re-educate Americans about nicotine. Altria has told the FDA that they believe that some of the funding that they've been using on anti-vaping campaigns should also be used on teaching Americans that nicotine isn't unhealthy. And of course, you have the anti-vaping people, the youth tobacco prevention people who they want to see less of these products on the market because they continue to pose a threat to youth. So it's, the FDA is under a huge amount of pressure right now. I think the FDA is in an impossible position. If they do not approve Juul, I think there's going to be lawsuits all around. It would look terrible for the FDA to single-handedly put an American company out of business, which is essentially what would happen if they don't grant this, you know, regulatory authorization, and. At the same time, they would be removing from the market the exact type of product that the FDA is, in a way, endorsing or facilitating when they say that we're going to take nicotine levels down and we want Americans to use a less harmful alternative. So it's a very complicated, controversial issue that has so many different facets to it that there's absolutely all kinds of political pressure and lobbying going on right now.
2: Reading your book, looking at the history of the research and how it's politicized, it seems like the cigarette companies just created a lot of noise in the research, right? They paid for a lot of studies. They said, we can never really know this stuff. It feels like there are echoes of it now where you can pick a study and it says what you want it to say. Is that a strategy that Juul is using now? Is that a strategy you see other companies using It it seems like that the tobacco wars, as you called them, became the focal point for well, we can actually twist science to say whatever we want it to say, or at least create confusion.
3: Yeah. And I think that the way that the tobacco industry just obfuscated and lied and covered up scientific research and at the same time paid scientists to generate studies that would support their conclusion. One of the reporters Back in the 1990s, called it the largest misinformation campaign in American business history. There was an extraordinary amount of lying and deceit by these tobacco companies, and I I do think that that's causing a huge challenge for Juul right now. One because anything they put out is going to be immediately doubted as just being you know another kind of study that's been bought and paid for by the tobacco industry. It's making it very hard for the company to come up with any sort of credible science that people are actually going to, you know, take hook, line, and sinker. I mean, there have been some issues recently where there was a public health journal where Juul essentially paid for the entire journal. And there was a series of studies in it, and there was all these disclaimers saying that these were people who worked at Jewel, scientists at Jewel, consultants who were hired by Jewel. Literally, the entire journal was articles written by people paid for or employed by Juul. And it caused a huge kind of controversy in the public health community and among researchers and scientists who are saying, well, this is essentially happening again. Now, Juul will say that, you know, these were legitimate studies that they did that, you know, deserve to be in this public health journal. But to me, what I found most fascinating is just the reaction to that, where immediately people, like, jumped on that and said, this is exactly like tobacco 2.0. They're using the same tactics. They're, you know, buying health journals, and they're engaging in those same types of tactics.
2: A lot of the focus of the controversy, a lot of focus in your book, is that Jule's marketing to teenagers, to influencers, to social media, created the crisis for itself that they had an initial marketing plan and they hired a flashier marketing guy, and he was like, we're going all in, New York City cool, billboards with models, the whole deal. And that created the problem. I actually went to the jewel launch party uh, that you describe in a warehouse full of influencers and beautiful people taking selfies. and the whole thing was literally it was full of jewel vape. It was an incredible party, and I walked out with a jewel. And then I was like immediately addicted to a jewel. It was great. I hope my mom doesn't listen to this. (laughs) I've since quit. Um, Oh, good for you. Is the problem that it was just too cool? It's such a weird aspect of this controversy that one of the things that set Jewel on the path of destruction was that it was perceived as cool, which is what every business person wants their product to be perceived as. Is is like the heart of the problem, they hired the wrong marketing guy and they chased cool instead of, I don't know, being perceived as medicine or a back brace or something that will just never be as cool?
3: Absolutely. I think that is and was their biggest misstep. I think had they treated the product with the requisite care that an addictive product should have, then they would have been better off. Instead, they hired a marketing staff whose sole focus was making this product as flashy and attractive as possible. They treated it as a gadget, as, you know, the next generation, you know, iPhone, and that it was a Fashion accessory. They gave it to models on runways at like the New York fashion show. So, literally, it was a fashion accessory and they treated it like that. And, you know, the way that they, the early ads essentially had pictures of these young, beautiful people using the jewel. There was no mention of nicotine. There was no mention that this was an addictive product. It was just suddenly this cool thing that you had to have in your hip pocket or in your whatever. In your hand if you wanted to be like a trendsetter so i do believe that that was their original sin you know that was their biggest problem that they created for themselves and that could have been entirely avoided however it also launched their product in a huge way you know i think jewel likes to distance themselves from the vaporize campaign and say oh the vaporize campaign didn't really work and it wasn't until later that the product took off but there is no doubt that the vaporize campaign gave it this kind of original cachet and that you know launched it onto well Times Square billboards that launched it into you know, magazines. And by the way, these were advertising tactics that the tobacco industry was literally banned from engaging in. I mean, they hired people who knew nothing about tobacco to do their marketing and who knew the most about how to make a brand pop, how to make a product be super desirable.
2: I've struggled with this one forever. If you make a product that 40-year-olds think are cool, It is likely that 20-year-olds will think it's cool. And that the real win of the Juul was the nicotine salts, right? So there were lots of vapes at that time. They all had different kinds of designs, and maybe they weren't designed by Eve Behar or whoever. But the reason the Juul won was because the product was more effective at delivering nicotine. If an uglier product had been effective at delivering nicotine, it it might well have won, right? And that's like to me that I can't unpack that in my brain right? Like, yep, they did an Instagram campaign, but really at the end of the day, they made a good product that was good. I'm putting good in quotes. They made a, a product that was really good at delivering nicotine to people. And that's the thing that made it successful, not a handful of billboards in Times Square.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think certainly the design and form factor of their product made it su- successful in addition to the nicotine solution. But I, th- I think one thing that we haven't really talked about is that not only was, did they use the nicotine salt, but they had the highest amount of nicotine on the market. You know, like at the time it was 5% nicotine. Well, it still is. But no other e-cigarette on the market had 5%. It was a huge amount of nicotine. So I think it's like you can't really separate them out. It's like could they have made an ugly device that was, you know, cloistered, you know, somehow or that was like not marketed and just put in a little box behind a CVS counter that looked like some sort of inhaler or something, which would have been like more of a medical device. Um, I don't yeah. know. I always
2: think about orthopedic shoes. Should right. they have made orthopedic shoes?
3: <laughs> right. I think, I mean, I really do think that if they had been focused on the adult smoker market that they should have and probably would have chosen a different marketing campaign. I think that is clear. So whether or not the marketing campaign is the reason for the catastrophe that followed with, you know, the kids using it, I think it's kind of undeniable. Like, of course, if you're going to show up at a rave and there's going to be like a jewel, you know, a a jewel container, you know, like pop-up store there, like they were absolutely designing it to be cool. I think that there was another way that they could have done it that would have involved less flashy marketing and that would have been tailored toward adult smokers, which they claimed that it was. So I do think that the marketing played a role in it for sure. And now whether or not there was the intent there, I think that's like the pretty big remaining question that is going to be litigated in courtrooms across the country is whether or not they intended to market to kids. I mean, maybe they just intended to create a great product, just like Steve Jobs, you know? Or maybe they intended to just, you know, do the best that they could. And I think that Adam and James did, actually. I think they just surrounded themselves with the wrong people. I think they made an error in judgment when they brought on Richard Mumby and when they brought on other people whose sole goal was to make the product cool. I think that that was the wrong marketing strategy for them. And I think it backfired on them in a huge way.
2: Richard Mumby is the the marketing guy.
3: Yeah, he was uh, ultimately the chief marketing officer at Jewel.
2: Laid low by the wrong marketing guy—a cautionary tale for all of us. You've said that you approach this book as a business book. That's what got you interested in the entire story. We're talking a lot about making markets, understanding markets, governments constraining markets. Let's end with a, like a broad question: What is the biggest business lesson that you've taken away as you as you've looked into what happened to Jewel?
3: I think it's pretty clear to me that the biggest business lesson is you need to know who your customers are and you need to be responsible. I mean, it almost sounds cliche, but like you can't go out of the gate, you know, like a bull in a china shop. Like you have to approach the market responsibly and anticipate regulatory questions if you want to have a long term viability. Now, certainly people would argue that that's not the way to go. No Silicon Valley entrepreneur or investor would get behind a company that was moving slowly, that was, you know, asking the FDA for permission. But I think in this instance, especially when you're selling a highly addictive product, there just needed to be a higher level of care given to that particular product, that you should understand the product that you're selling and not try to make it also something that's different. Jewel was selling a highly addictive product, and they treated it like an iPhone or a watch or some other gadget. I think that they should have recognized what they were selling instead of trying to make it to be something that it isn't. I mean, it's both of those things, but I think that they should have had a higher level of care, and I think that businesses probably could benefit from that. But in the long run, I think that they realize that that's not the way that you grow fast. So I I think that there's a very big tension between those. And I understand that. But I do think that Jewel would have bought itself longevity had it not just crushed the market like it did.
2: Well, Lauren, I've taken up so much of your time. Thank you for being on Decoder. It is a great book. It's out now. Tell people where they can go find it.
3: You can buy my book, anywhere on um, your local bookstore would be the best option. You can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it anywhere books are sold. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you.
2: Thanks again to Lauren Etter for taking the time to talk today and thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. We're off next week for the 4th of July holiday, but we'll be back with a new episode on July 13th. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at or hit me up directly on Matt Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Liam James, Alexander Charles Adams, and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you on July 13th.